So as I said, we're going to be all over the place this morning uh, examining the subject of local church membership. Last week we examined 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2 to see what the church is, her essence. We saw that the church is the called and the believing people of God. God has called you, Christian, to be a saint. And you have responded to that call by yourself calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2 would put it. The church is the called, believing people of God. And we saw last week that the church is the called, believing people of God everywhere. All, all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2 says. But we saw last week that the church is not only the believing, called people of God everywhere, but is also the called, believing people of God in particular places. And so, Paul can write not only to the, those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, but Paul can write to the church in Corinth. So it's right to speak of the church as referring to the called, believing people of God everywhere. That's an appropriate biblical usage of the term church, just to refer to all of those called and believing people everywhere, in all places, all those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And theologians call that the universal church. It's also right... We introduced this idea last week, and we'll expand on it a bit more today. It's also right to speak of the church as referring to the called, believing people of God in a particular place, in a particular locale, the local church. As we noted last week, the universal church, all called, believing people everywhere, is real, but it's nebulous, somewhat hard to pin down. Somewhat hard to observe. In other words, if you were to just try to look at the universal church, how would you do that? How would you begin to endeavor to observe the universal church? You can see that when you would endeavor to do such a task, it would be fraught with difficulties. It would be difficult to do. So this universal church is real, but it's somewhat nebulous. Somewhat hard to observe, hard to pin down, etc. The local church is not more real. And that's an important point to stress. The universal church is a thing. It's known to God. There are particular people who comprise the universal church. And God knows everyone. In fact, God numbers the hairs on the heads of every single person in the universal church. So the local church is not more real. But the local church is more observable. The local church is more well-defined, more immediate, more manageable to study, to examine, to participate in. So one way we could describe the local church is like this. The local church is the primary visible expression of what biblical Christianity is. The local church is the primary visible expression of what biblical Christianity is. The local church ought to be a real life example of what biblical Christianity is supposed to look like according to the New Testament. 
In other words, when you're reading through the New Testament and you read something about how Christians are supposed to conduct themselves, how Christians are supposed to conduct themselves in their individual lives, in their relationships to one another, in their workplaces, and so on and so forth, and you ask yourself, what would this teaching look like if it was put into practice by a group of people? The local church should be the most obvious place to look and to see what biblical Christianity looks like. You want to see what it looks like when a group of people put into practice what the New Testament says Christians should be like? Look at the local church. You should be able to investigate any local church and see biblical Christianity in practice. And notice I said should be. I'm not going to dwell on that point, but obviously not all local churches are the best examples of biblical Christianity. But we're not talking about what is, we're talking about what ought to be. The local church should be the best place to see biblical Christianity being lived out by a group of Christians. Since it's hard to examine all Christians everywhere, it's more reasonable instead that people would look to some Christians somewhere if they're trying to find out what biblical Christianity is. The local church gives visible expression to what all Christians everywhere ought to be. So we then, as a local church, Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, we ought to be living out biblical Christianity. We ought to be giving visible expression to what biblical Christianity is. That involves many things. And Sunday by Sunday, we're learning and growing together. But one aspect of living out biblical Christianity is that we should be practicing, and which we do endeavor to practice here at CRBC, is local church membership. The New Testament explicitly teaches us that we are members of the body of Christ. We read that in Romans 12 earlier in the service, in 1 Corinthians 12. Just a moment ago, we are, as Christians, if you are a regenerate person, if you have experienced the new birth, if you have trusted in Christ Jesus, you are a member of Christ's body, the universal church. And if that is true, then we should expect, and you should expect, to give that reality some visible expression at the local level. In other words, if you are a member of the universal church, that should look like something at the local level. You shouldn't, it shouldn't be hard to tell by looking at you, by observing your life, that you are a member of Christ's body. That should be given some visible expression somewhere. And the place where that is to be given expression is the local church. You live out the truth that you belong to Christ's body in a particular place. You are not a universal being. You're a local being. You're a localized being. Therefore, the way that you live out your membership in the universal church is not universally by relating to all Christians everywhere, but you live that out locally by, by being in relationship to some Christians somewhere. Some people... Bach at the idea of local church membership, however. 
stating that membership in the universal church is enough and that it's unbiblical to press local church membership on people. So let's start our discussion of local church membership today by examining the biblical basis for local church membership. I'm going to start by admitting that the word membership, at least as it's applied to uh, the local church, is not in the Bible. However, as with the Trinity, the concept is there. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 and see that the church at Jerusalem could be numbered. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? There had to be an existing number of persons to which 3,000 were added. This is a pretty straightforward point, and it's not really a main weight-bearing point anyway, so I'm not going to bother to comment further. I just want you to note that the church at Jerusalem could be numbered. Turn now to Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 28. And when he, that is Saul, or later to be called Paul, had come to Jerusalem... He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Notice in this passage, that the church at Jerusalem could be joined. So the church at Jerusalem could be numbered, and the church at Jerusalem could be joined. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, this is verse 26, he attempted to join the disciples. And notice that the first thing that Saul did when he was converted, once he got home to Jerusalem, after being in Damascus for some time, was attempt to join the disciples. Chapter 9 and verse 26. Saul's intention was to commit to the believers in Jerusalem in a particular way that he hadn't committed to the believers in Damascus. The believers in Jerusalem, we see, send him from there to Tarsus uh, in verse 30. Where Paul still is when Barnabas invites him to Antioch in Acts chapter 11 and verse 25. Barnabas is vested with the authority of the church in Jerusalem in his mission to Antioch. He seeks out Saul within the scope of his authority on behalf of the church at Antioch. And asks him to come and join him in Antioch. And Paul does so. What we see is that there is Paul enters into a relationship with the Jerusalem church in chapter 9 that commits him to that particular group of believers and actually puts him under their authority which he continues to submit to for the next couple of chapters until he joins the church at Antioch in uh, chapter 11. What would be your advice to a new believer about the first things 
that he or she should do when they come to Christ. So you're out evangelizing, you're talking to people about the gospel, you're sharing the faith with, let's say, a brother or a sister in your family, or an aunt or an uncle, a co-worker, a friend. Let's say that they're converted, that God gives them the new birth, that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. What would your advice to the new believer be? Read your Bible? Pray? Those are great first steps. And they should be part of your first advice. But would, you, would part of your first advice be seek to join yourself to a church? That should be right up there with reading your Bible and praying, as Paul's example shows. He was converted on the way to Damascus. He spent some time with the believers there. But as soon as he comes home to Jerusalem, the first thing that he does is try to join the church. Turn now to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. We've seen that the church in Jerusalem could be numbered, that the church in Jerusalem could be joined. Now listen as I read 1 Peter 5, 1 to 3. So I exhort the elders among you, or the pastors among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. Here we see that elders are given people to be in their charge. If you went on a vacation and you said, I left my house in the charge of my friend, does that mean that you left it unlocked and that your neighborhood could just come in and out freely and that nobody was particularly responsible for that particular house? Of course not. The whole idea of something being in someone's charge is that it means that that person is particularly responsible for the thing that is in their charge. What we see in 1 Peter chapter 5 is that there are particular people who are in the charge of particular elders. So to bring that down to earth, what that means is that some of you are in my charge. Who? Some of you are in my charge as a pastor of this church. And turn now to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, listen, as those who will have to give an account. We see in this verse that leaders will have to give an account for souls. By implication, I will have to give an account for souls to God as a leader of this church. Whose souls will I have to give an account for? Everyone who ever comes through the door of this church? Everyone who's ever heard me preach? Local Bajans, international visitors? People who normally attend a church somewhere else on the island but come here every few months? I'll have to give an account for their souls? 
Are they in my charge? That I am particularly responsible for them? You can see when you press this idea that the way that the scripture talks about the relationship of church leaders to the people that they lead necessitates the concept of membership. So the church in Jerusalem could be numbered. The church in Jerusalem could be joined. There are leaders of churches who are particularly responsible for particular people and who will have to give an account for the souls of particular people. Then consider the inverse of this relationship of pastors to the people that they care for. Consider the duties of Christians toward their pastors along the lines of, let's just say, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, which we just read. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. Which leaders are you supposed to obey and submit to? Everyone? Anyone who calls themselves a pastor? Anyone who calls themselves a bishop or an apostle or a shepherd or whatever any title anyone takes to themselves, they're all, you have to obey them and submit to them because you're a Christian. And it says in the Bible, obey your leaders and submit to them. The pastor of any church you've ever attended, you have to obey and submit to any sermon you've ever heard. You can see that also the duties of Christians necessitate that there are particular leaders to whom you are responsible to obey and to submit to. It's not just, this is not universal church instructions, as if all Christians just submit to all leaders and all leaders just give an account for everybody. So I'm not, I don't give an account for Christians in Russia that I never met. They're not in my charge. Likewise, you're not responsible to obey the pastors of Russian churches, for example. There are particular people that are in my charge for whose souls I will give an account. And then there are particular people who are, for example, to obey and to submit to me, to our elders team. And then there are other churches who are responsible for other souls, who have other souls in their charge. And there are other leaders to whom people are to submit and to obey. Finally, consider the explicit statement in 1 Corinthians 5 that there is an inside and an outside of the church. Paul writes to the Corinthians about a sin issue in the congregation. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, we read this. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We're going to talk about this passage a little bit more in a few minutes. But for now, simply just note that someone may be inside the church or outside the church. And someone can be purged from among us. It's possible for us here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church to purge an evil person from among us. I haven't even interpreted the Bible yet. I've just read the Bible. 
there is inside the church and there is outside the church and it is possible to purge the evil person from a church. All of this necessitates the concept of local church membership. So though the word membership, as it is applied particularly to a local church, there's no verse that says thou shalt join a particular local church. We do read the word members but generally it is referring to the universal body of Christ, how all Christians have been baptized into one body, and so on and so forth. So I can't point you to a chapter and a verse, but I can't point you to a chapter and a verse that teaches the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity either, for example. There are concepts that are biblical, even though we don't find the specific words or the specific phrases um, uh, articulated explicitly. So having examined the biblical basis for local church membership, let's examine now a few cases of local church membership functioning in the New Testament. First, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Paul writes... He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or in other words, the leadership gifts to the church. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The functioning of the mem- of membership is that we all contribute, is that we all serve in particular ways, that we come together and we function like an organism. As we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, just because the ear is not a hand, it can't say, well, I'm not part of the body. So you don't, you don't look at me, for example, and be like, well, I'm not called to preach, so I guess I'm not going to be a church member. right? Or you don't, you don't look at someone else serving in another capacity and say, well, I, I can't serve like her, so I guess, I'm not, I guess I'm not a church member. All church members don't look the same, just as your ear and your hand don't look the same, but they're both part of the body. Not all church members have to look the same. And that goes the opposite way, too, where we don't say, well, because you can't do what I do, You're not a church member. We recognize that God has given a diversity of gifts and and wired people different ways in order that we may come together in a complementary way and function as an organism together in the context of the local church. So, one of the gifts that God gives to the church is leadership gifts. And so I have a role in the body. I have a ministry In the body. But as I've said before, I don't like it when people refer to church leaders as the minister or the ministers. 
Because that implies that the only ministry that's happening in the church is the ministry that the leaders are doing. I am a minister in this church. But every member of the church should be a minister also. According to first or pardon me, according to Ephesians chapter four. So what we see here is this organic functioning of the body. And uh, that's a big part of how membership functions. So we've seen that membership is a thing. It has legitimacy. It's real. It's, it's an implied command, in fact, of Jesus Christ. That it's a necessary part of actually living out the commands, the imperatives that are here in Scripture. The church can be numbered. The church can be joined. It makes... It's the only way to make sense of the duties of pastors. It's the only way to make sense of the duties of Christians to their pastors. And there is an explicit inside and outside of the church. It is a thing. Membership is a thing. It's part of Christ's vision as the head for his body. That we would have local church membership. We're talking now about function. And the first thing that we see is this complementary organic functioning of the members. Every member ministry, everyone contributing in some way to the healthy functioning of the church. The body grows so that it builds itself up in love, Ephesians 4.16 says, when each part is working properly. Or if you have the King James Version, it will say, with every joint supplying, or as every joint supplies. That's one of the ways that the church functions. Another way that the church functions is in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. One of the ways that the body functions, the church functions together, is in persevering relationships. These couple verses make no sense apart from committed, persevering relationships. So let's say that, let's say that we have an argument, you and me, and let's, say, let's just say for the sake of argument that I'm wrong. And I've done something wrong against you. And you feel rightly offended by something wrong that I've done to you. And then I say, well, will you please forgive me? And you say, yes, I forgive you, but I'm out of here. And you've gone to another church. That doesn't really, that's not really the biblical picture that we have here of forgiveness. Of, of this bearing with one another. In Colossians 3, 12 and 13. If we always just leave a church every time there's a problem. Even a legitimate problem. And we just go. And we're like, well, that, that church is full of hypocrites. <laughs> and so you leave and you go down the street to another church. Are you really doing what Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says? Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. One of the ways that we function together is that we actually sin against one another and stay in the same church. And we work it out. And the process is not always easy and it's not always smooth, but we're committed to it. 
because we have a commitment to one another. We're members of the same church, and there's a tie then that binds us together to one another, such that we don't just leave whenever things come up. We work through it together, and we learn to bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, we learn to forgive and work through it. So this is the functioning of the body of Christ, the functioning of local church membership in the New Testament. Turn with me now to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Alright, what do we draw out about local church membership from that verse I just read you? It's this. God has given the membership of the church, the membership of the church, ultimate authority and responsibility under God for its own health the health of the local church that's an implication of the verse I just read you let me, let me read it again I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are false or pardon me cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. If it's the leaders of the church who are ultimately responsible under God for the health of the church, then we could never test an apostle. We could only leave. We could only say those leaders are leading in a bad way, so I'm going to go. We could absent ourselves but we could never rightfully test an apostle and find them false if they were the legitimate final authority under God. What you see here is that Jesus commands a church for resisting a leader who's leading wrong. Apostles come and set themselves up in authority over a congregation and that congregation says, "Mm -mm, not so fast. We're not following you down that road. You're a false apostle. We're not going to obey you. We are not going to submit to you. Jesus commands the church for doing that. What that shows is that the membership of the church has ultimate responsibility and ultimate authority under God for its own health. A lot of pastors... Leaders, a lot of those who call themselves apostles don't like this teaching because it means that they can be tested and found to be false. It also means, by implication, that if a, the membership of a church is unhealthy, they can make bad decisions about their own health, about the leaders that they gather to themselves. We read elsewhere that in the last days people will gather themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We're going to tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Again, how can people gather teachers to themselves if it's not their responsibility to call teachers? 
and to remove teachers from their position and so on and so forth. There is a sense in which I am accountable only to God. It's not my job to come up here as if it's a democracy and try to maintain the popular vote as I preach week by week. But there is another sense in which God has structured the local church such that I am accountable to you. And that you can and should, and it's actually constitutionally provided in our constitution at CRBC, for you to fire me if I lead you astray. It's not ultimately my responsibility under God to make sure that this church is healthy. I have a role to play in that. God has given a diversity of gifts, as we read from Ephesians 4, and some of those are leadership gifts. But it's not ultimately my responsibility to make sure that this church stays on track. Ultimately, it's the responsibility of the members of this church to make sure that this church stays on track. And we ought to exercise that responsibility and authority, not over errant leaders only, but also over errant fellow members. And now we circle back around to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What we see going on in this passage is that a man was sleeping with probably his stepmom. We're not sure exactly. There's some dispute about exactly what the nature of the relationship was, but it was an inappropriate relationship. And rather than the church mourning about it, it's like they're it's like they're boasting about their freedom in Christ or something like this. Like that seems to be what's going on. So instead of the church dealing sternly with this man and this woman about her sin or his sin, instead of them dealing sternly with it, they were probably going around saying something like, Well, we're a church that's all about grace. You know, and this is our freedom in Christ, that we're not we're not bound to the law. You know, we're not legalists here. Or something like that seems to be what was going on in this section here in 1 Corinthians 5. So there's this man who is a member of the church and is behaving like a non-Christian. Not only is he sleeping with someone that he's not married to, but he's sleeping with someone in an inappropriate relationship that has been forbidden by God. Um, Paul writes in verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now I want you to know, what Paul says here is not, I have delivered this man over to Satan. Let him know. He doesn't say, I have delivered this man over to Satan, announce it publicly at your next meeting. He says, when you're assembled, you do it. So he gives leadership in this matter, but he puts the responsibility for this matter on the church. Now, if you look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you're going to see the mechanism by which they did this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. 
Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So that, for this is why I wrote that I may test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. That's written a time later when this man who was put out of the church is being restored. And what Paul says is this punishment inflicted, this punishment by the majority is enough. So when he says, you hand him over, and then later he says, the the punishment by the majority is enough. What he's envisioning and what the Corinthians did is they voted to put this man out of the church. Paul didn't just use apostolic authority to put this guy out. He told the Corinthian church, you do it. And they did it by a vote. The membership of the church put this man out. This is like in the Old Testament when somebody would commit a sin in the nation of Israel, a particular sin, and had to be stoned. They didn't have appointed executioners. The people who were involved in the case, sometimes family members or friends or witnesses or whoever, would come around and stone the person to death. They all had a hand in it. The reason for that is because the point isn't that the leaders of Israel need to keep Israel pure. It's that Israel needs to keep herself pure. The Israelites need to keep themselves pure. So Christ's people are to keep themselves pure. It's not that the leaders of the church are to keep Christ's people pure, but that Christ's people are to keep themselves pure. You understand the difference? The leaders have a hand in it. We lead, we teach, we instruct, we advise, and so on and so forth. But ultimately, we see in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2, ultimately the congregation even has the responsibility to resist and to rebel against errant leaders. They have that responsibility and that authority under God. And the members of the church have authority and responsibility under God also to exercise church discipline. It's not vested in me or our eldership. It's vested in you, the church members here at CRBC. We are to hold one another accountable for the Christian life, even as we hold our leaders accountable for Christian teaching and doctrine. And so on and so forth. And when we fail to live the way that we ought, or when I fail to teach the way that I ought, conversation should be had. And we don't jump immediately to excommunication. Conversation should be had. Matthew 18 gives us general principles. You go and speak to your brother alone. It doesn't have to be a big thing at first. Just go talk about it. But if the issue persists... It's quantifiable. It's not like, I suspect that you're proud. 
right? But it's quantifiable. It's like it's like you stole a hundred dollars from me, right? And it's it's provable. It's um, serious enough or persistent enough. Not like you spoke with me in an irritated tone of voice, you know. And now we're going to put you out of the church, right? But it's serious enough or it's persistent enough. There's just no repentance. These things. Um, or if it's a doctrinal issue, right? It's not just it's not just like well, I don't. I, don't, I think you know Christ is going to return in the middle of the tribulation, or the beginning of the tribulation. It's not like. It's not like um, lesser things along those lines, but it's more serious things, doctrinal errors that avert the foundation of the Christian faith, and so on and so forth. There is a time for the members of the church to act to remove a pastor or remove a deacon from their office. There's a time for the members of the church to put out a fellow church member. The membership is given ultimate authority and responsibility for those things under God. Ultimate authority and responsibility under God for our own health. So what that means practically here is, again... Just to stress the point, because this is a paradigm shift for most of us. Covenant Reformed Baptist Church of Barbados is not going to stay, is not intended by God to stay on track because I keep it on track. Covenant Reformed Baptist Church is intended by God to stay on track because we keep it on track. Me playing my part and you playing your part. This is why we have a presentation of potential church members to the congregation and then a waiting period and then a vote to receive in new church members because we have a responsibility to be comfortable enough and confident enough that these are regenerate people that we're receiving into membership. We're not like, yeah, yeah, pastor says it's okay, so that's fine. But we have a responsibility for it. And you can see how if we were to let in unbelievers into the church membership who maybe just whatever, just are just religious people or moral people or whatever, but don't really get the gospel, aren't really about Christ's glory and the centrality of the gospel. You can understand that if we did that on a large scale, that this church would become very unhealthy and would end up making decisions that would significantly affect the health of this church adversely down the road. So that's why we have those mechanisms in place. So we've seen a biblical case for church membership. Church could be numbered, could be joined. The duties of pastors to the people in their charge necessitates church membership. And the duties of Christians to their leaders necessitates church membership. There is explicitly an inside the church and an outside the church. That's in 1 Corinthians 5. A church can actually purge an evil person from among it. Even if that person still professes the faith. They could say, well, you can't put me out, I'm a Christian. And the church could say, yes, we are putting you out. You can purge someone from among you, even against their will. Biblical case. And then we've seen the church functioning. There's this organic, complementary functioning, like in Ephesians 4, where all the members of the body contribute and minister one to another in varying ways. There's persevering relationships, like in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, in which we bear with one another. And forgive one another. Relationships don't end when sin happens. Revelation chapter 2 and 
1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2 teach us that the membership has ultimate responsibility for the church under God. Those are some ways that the local church functions in the New Testament. Now we come, lastly, to what church membership tells us about the gospel and the Christian life. What local church membership tells us about the gospel and the Christian life. First, local church membership tells us that Jesus didn't come merely to save me, but to save us. The Christian life is not to be conceived as an independent, solo lifestyle, but as a heavily communal lifestyle. Though we must enter one by one through the narrow door, when we get on the inside, we find that there's actually a lot of people inside that, that, that narrow door. And in Christ, they're not strangers to us, but brothers and sisters in the family of God. To all who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. He gave me the right to become a son of God. But I'm not the only son. Fellow Christians here this morning, you are my brothers. You are my sisters. We are the family of God. Local church membership teaches us something about the nature of the gospel and of the Christian life as God conceives it. It's to be communal, not independent and solo. Second, local church membership tells us that Jesus didn't come merely to save us from obvious external sins like drunkenness or promiscuity, but also from sinful heart attitudes like selfishness and pride and etc., etc., and the more subtle ways that those kinds of things play out in our lives. To illustrate this point with respect to selfishness, simply by way of example, consider that it would not be out of place to enter into a large crowd at Kensington Oval and show little concern for the people around you as you watch a sporting event or something. Since those people are essentially strangers to you and you have little to no obligation to them beyond bare human decency. However, it would be entirely out of place to enter into a house full of family members and yet show little concern for them. Christ has communicated to us in the pages of Scripture His intention that we should act like family. And Christ has placed us in an environment here in a local church where to some extent we're forced to act like family. We're forced to learn it if it doesn't come natural. If it's awkward, if it's difficult, well, tough luck. You're a church member now. In a church that properly understands and practices church membership, Not only are sins like drunkenness and promiscuity confronted, and hopefully those would be infrequent among our membership, but also sins like selfishness, for example, are confronted as they manifest themselves in our interactions with our brethren. In other words, as we get to know one another, not just those external, obvious, visible sins, 
uh, come to the front, but also the things that if we stay at a distance, no one can see. In the local church, they're seen. This teaches us that Christ is not merely concerned with obvious external sins, but also even with wrong heart motivations and the subtle ways that those things manifest themselves in our midst. Likewise, as with selfishness, there are not too many places where you'll be helped with your pride, with your lack of integrity, with your insecurity, with your laziness. Perhaps at work you you would be reprimanded or even fired for some of those things, but you most likely won't be patiently loved and helped through them in your workplace. So first, local church membership tells us that Jesus didn't come merely to save me, but to save us. Christianity is not a solo enterprise. Christ has made you a son of God, a daughter of God. But the church is the visible manifestation of the truth that he is bringing many sons to glory. Second, local church membership tells us that Jesus didn't come merely to save me from the power of obvious external sins, but also from the power of sinful heart attitudes, like selfishness or pride or whatever else, and the more subtle ways that those things manifest themselves in our lives. Christ has made provision for an environment in which these sorts of things are confronted and dealt with in a context of committed grace. Third then, and in view of these first two, local church membership tells us that Christ is a yet more gracious Savior than perhaps you had conceived Him to be when you came into church this morning. If you haven't given much thought to the benefit the blessing, the grace of local church membership, you might not have yet realized just how gracious our Christ is to us in providing that for us. Did you think that Christ had only forgiven you and then left you to your own devices and resources to make your way through this world? Did you think that perhaps though you would acknowledge that God has given His Holy Spirit to you to help you, did you think that it was basically up to you and the Holy Spirit to just make it through alone all the way through this life? Local church membership teaches us that Christ has graciously provided us with another huge, huge help in the Christian life. Brothers and sisters who love us, who are committed to us, to walk with us through life in relationships of encouragement accountability, grace. Just think about that. Christ hasn't left you to make it all the way from Egypt to the promised land 
through the wilderness alone. When you lay down at night, you don't have to hear the wilderness wind howling. Well, you're just laying there in the Sinai desert by yourself, scared of all the creatures that might be out there and all the dangers and all the perils. You're in the camp of God's people. And there's a guard set. Lay down and sleep, brother. Lay down and sleep, sister. You're among friends. God hasn't left us to make our way from Egypt to the promised land all alone trying to learn on the fly how to navigate by the stars or just tell the direction of your travel by the landmarks and the geographical indications that are before you or the direction of the wind or something like this God's provided people to walk with you and say, not this way, that way. Think of the blessing that it is to travel from Egypt to the promised land among a people, a redeemed people, all of whom have been likewise brought out of that slavery, all of whom are headed for that same destination, none of whom are better than you at the end of the day or worse than you at the end of the day I'm not denying degrees and gradations of sin there are people who make more and less progress in holiness but as uh, a pastor named Chris Bronze pointed out arguing about who's more righteous than another is like two ants at the base of Mount Everest arguing about who's taller At the end of the day, we're sinners saved by grace. We're former slaves called out of Egypt, making our way to the promised land. And so there's a context of grace. Even as there is real accountability, there's a context of grace, camaraderie, brotherhood, as we make our way to the promised land. We don't have to fear church membership. It's just the people that God has appointed to travel with us while we make our way to that land flowing with milk and honey. It's people who can help you get there. People who can help you stay safe along the way. What a gracious Savior the Lord Jesus Christ is. Not to have merely offered up to Christ, offered up, pardon me, to His Father, the righteousness that we lacked on our behalf. Not merely to have died bearing the punishment that we deserved for us. Not merely to have ascended, risen and ascended to pour out His Holy Spirit upon us. All of these things should leave us awestruck. But not merely to do these things and then say, now go it alone with my help but to put us in a context like this where we have people alongside of us day by day to walk with us to journey together this is a blessing of the new covenant church membership is a blessing of the new covenant 
that Christ, our head, out of his fullness, has poured out for us, upon us. To resist church membership is as crazy as resisting the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Or as crazy as resisting the grace of adoption. It's a blessing, a provision that God has made for us in the new covenant in order that all of the purposes that He has for His people might be realized in us. What a gracious Savior we have. Local church membership is both an implicit command and a gracious provision of Christ for His people.